Alright, so we are back for episode three. And you obviously a long delay between episodes due to uh, your Arizona trip, you know, being semi retired. Yay. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna come back, pick up where we left off, and you were just stationed in Traverse City, but before we get there, you had a couple stories that after we stopped recording, you remembered and kind of told me, and I thought were funny, and uh, a big part of the last episode was uh, the parachute rigger school was a Marine slash Coast Guard Navy. or Navy right. yeah. uh, base, when you, so you guys were kind of inter- intermingled, and you kind of made a point to say that you went, you guys in the Coast Guard went to great lengths to... Uh, mess with the Marines and we mess with anybody <laughs> basically point out or make it known how dumb they were and uh, I believe the Coast Guard commanding officer well our Coast Guard leading petty officer yeah the, the Coast Guard liaison between the Navy Marine Corps and the Coast Guard so he definitely took advantage of how much the Marines didn't know or care uh, and you had a little story about some of his summer wear yeah, we we <clears throat> we had to stand inspections just because it's a Navy school, Marines are there. So we had to stand inspections, so they'd have work blue inspections and dress blue inspections, and they had no idea what our uniforms looked like. And at the time I was going through A school, we still had the dungarees and the chambray shirts like the Navy, but we're progressing into the... Um, the blues, like we have now, blue work shirt, blue pants, um, that uh, ball cap, that's it, you know. And then we also had the boot and uniforms we had in boot camp, which were just a conglomeration of anything. Dark blue shirt, light blue shirt, dark blue pants, lighter blue pants, blue jeans, it didn't matter. So there were five of us Coast Guard guys, so we'd all figure out and wear a separate uniform every single time while we're standing inspection, so all five of us would be in a different uniform, and the Marines would just go nuts. And one of the guys, in uh, Coast Guard guy, he was in um, Presidential Honor Guard. So they have special belt buckles and the things they can wear. And he was, you know, U.S. Coast Guard Presidential Honor Guard. And, of course, the belt buckle was silver. So one inspection, uh, Staff Sergeant Rast comes up and says, that's an illegal belt buckle. And, of course, George says, no, it's not. I'm allowed to wear this belt buckle. He said, no, uniform regs say you have to have a brass belt buckle. So George took his buckle off, showed him that on the back, even though it was plated in silver, it said 100% brass. So they still couldn't figure it out. And if they did gig us or anything and take it to our liaison, Petty Officer Shaw, he would just look at it and laugh and go, you guys are doing good. And that would be the end of it. One time we had an inspection and the Marine Warrant Officer came in and they're just going on, you know, all different uniforms and yada, yada, yada. And he goes, well... At least they're not wearing the Coast Guard short uniform. And he goes, ask Shaw about that. So we're like, what? You know, so of course we go back to Shaw and say, hey, you know, Gunny, Gunny said, hey, he wants, he wants you to tell us about the, the Coast Guard short. So he laughed and he goes, yeah, it was hot. So I figured they don't know. So I cut a pair of pants off to shorts, wore black stocks up to my knees, short sleeve shirt. And they came up and said, you can't wear that. He said, yeah, I can. It's Coast Guard summer short. 
And they, again, they didn't know what to do. And he, so they was like, well, <clears throat> Sean is sissy pants. He's always walking around in his sissy pants in the summer. And it's like, and no one ever told him he couldn't. So he did. So, yeah, obviously just another way to take advantage and mess with the Marines who, as I'm sure all of you guys have, and I've heard jokes from you about the Marines and Army and Air Force and Navy, and I've heard jokes from the Navy about the Coast Guard. I know you guys all have jokes, and it's all stuff like this, I'm sure, that feeds into it. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah, and it's... You know, we all make fun of... I mean, the Coast Guard probably gets the brunt of it because it's the red-headed stepchild of the service and, you know, smallest and all that stuff. And I mean, I, I've met Air Force people and, you know, oh, what's your job in the Air Force? And they say, my job is to remove the FOD shields from F-111s. And then what? That's all I do. I remove the FOD shield from the F-111. They call inside, inspect it, and I have to stand there to make sure that nothing comes inside. And when they're done, I put the FOD shield back on. And it's like, that's it? Uh, I mean, there's I, I, other stories of further along in my Coast Guard career where we had to land at a Navy base or an Air Force base, and, you know, they have no clue. One guy gets out of the helicopter, and they're like, where's your crew? This is it. Well, who does this? I do. Who does this? I do. Who does this? I do. Oh, man, that is, that, that must be nice. And Yeah, it is. <laughs> I am the guy. Uh, another story you had was on the, I want to say Evergreen, but I know that's not. The, my cutter? First, yeah. Yeah, Evergreen. Okay, sorry. Yep. The Evergreen. And you know, it was kind of pertaining to the whale watching. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we were... Um, the Evergreen, again, was a red-headed stepchild ship and the red-headed stepchild unit, the red-headed stepchild service. It was a converted um, oceanographic tugboat from World War II, converted to icebreaking and scientific research. So it was assigned to the um, East Coast doing international ice patrols, and it would also do take scientists out and do eddy studies, which is the current studies and um, just the wildlife and just all kinds of stuff. And we were supposed to, at all times, report every whale sighting, iceberg sighting, anything, you know, we saw. And I was out on the flying bridge and, you know, and it would be almost constant. You'd just be, you know, bridge, flying bridge, whale spouts, you know, bearing 0360, you know, approximately three miles, multiple whale spouts, 090, you know, and and just constant, constant. And I was up there one time and uh, the bridge called me up and said, I don't want to hear any more whale sightings. Okay. So I'm just leaning a thing with my binoculars and lo and behold, the captain comes up to the flying bridge and looks around. He says, uh, Oh, look, whale spouts. Yep, you know, pull my binoculars up and look at them. I'm like, yeah, pretty cool, you know. Oh, he's like, um, there's whale spouts all over there, too. Aren't you going to call the bridge? I said, no, sir, I was told not to call in any whale sightings. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. And he says, well, carry on. Do you hear different? He goes down. And, of course, me being 
me, but you opened up the voice tube so I could hear what was being said on the bridge. And, you know, captain on the bridge, you know, and he says, who has the OOD? And I do. He said, do you know what we're supposed to be doing here, Ensign? You know, uh, ice patrols. He said, and, you know, scientific studies. We're supposed to be reporting all these whale sightings and, you know, the migratory areas of the whales. And he's, you know, yes, sir. He says, well, then why did you tell the guy on the flying bridge not to report any more whale sightings? Well, they were getting redundant. I, <laughs> that's our job. So I, you know, closed the voice tube and chuckled to myself and, you know, ring, open up, you know, flying bridge eye. Yeah, McIntyre, go ahead and start reporting every whale sighting you see. <laughs> aye, aye, sir, multiple <laughs> whale sightings. <laughs> and I just start going on and it's like, jeez. Nice. So, yeah, of course, somebody taking upon themselves to change the parameters of the mission. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it did get... Oh, I'm sure, like, a whale spout, whale, whale spout, spout whale multiple spout. whale spouts, multiple right. whale spouts, multiple whale spouts, and, you know, and there was uh, one time I was on watch, and, I mean, it had to have been, I, <clears throat> I have no idea if it was, but this whale was just absolutely huge, and the spouts kept getting closer and closer and closer, and I'm like, what the heck is that? And... I was over on the, the right side of the bridge, and I looked down, and there is a whale. We were 180 feet long, and this whale was, I mean, half and again as large as the whole ship. And he's just like on his side with that one huge eye just looking right up at me. And I'm like, I run back, and I go, there is a huge whale sighting right off the starboard side. And you hear the how far away? <laughs> like, it's right there. Look well, you hear down. all the people on the bridge go over and go, Holy Jesus! And they go, Now, for the information of all hands, there is a large whale off our starboard side. Well, I'm on the flying bridge, I look down, see the doors open, a couple people walk out and go, Holy crap! And they run, they get my camera, get my camera! And, and he, she, stayed right beside the ship, swimming with us for a good 15, 20 minutes. And then just kind of, faded away and it's like i want to say it was a blue whale because it was huge but i i don't know but it was it was a very big whale and it's like it's just so cool but then you get then you see something like that and you have to remember oh crap i'm supposed to report that <laughs> <laughs> yeah something that kind of takes you know takes your breath away a little bit and makes you feel small i'm sure uh, yeah and i remember this will probably touch on this more later on in the episode or not this episode but Right. As we get further into uh, your career, we had a piece of baleen. That yeah, that was from Alaska. Right, you yeah. got from Alaska. And I'm sure, again, blue whales, they feed using baleen. Baleen is basically a non-meat-eating, I mean, I guess you'd call krill or plankton or whatever you yeah. want to call it. I guess it would be meat, but they don't have teeth. It's these, it looks like a, a comb almost, and they yeah, filter it, out water and keep all those. Yeah, it has a consistency of like a fingernail. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hairy. Yeah, it's dark, and and the ends are hairy. Yeah, it's so, it's. I think Eric found that on the beach in Kodiak. I think. I remember, I remember he he claimed that for a long time. It's still in the front closet. Oh, it is. we still have it. Yeah. Oh, nice. That I mean, this is cool. Like you know that that we found that, and that's all because of your career, and that made me think of that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, those are two stories that you kind of remember. Well, actually, that's a third story <laughs> even. Uh, but those are some stories that you kind of remembered after we got done recording. Yeah. So now we're going to transition to your 
first stay in Traverse City. Right. And this is where you started your aviation career. This is where, yeah, right out of A school, I went to Traverse City. And I um, it, I checked in with the ASM chief. And he said, oh, good. I'm, you know, you're here. Well, here, I got something for you. And he hands me a key. He goes, this is the key to the shop. You know where the hangar is. It's upstairs. You'll see it. It says ASM parachute loft. That's the key to it. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, well, I'll, I guess I'll see you in the morning. He goes, no, I'm going on leave. Mm. I'm like, oh, well, who else is in the shop? Well, Lewis is in the shop, but he might not be. I think he's still sick in quarters. So it's just going to be you in the shop. <laughs> and I was like, very well. <clears throat> you know? So, yeah, bright and early next morning, I get up, breakfast, and everybody's like, you know, who are you? Who are you? You know, uh, I'm the new ASM. And, oh, yeah, because um, the other guy was getting out. Or, no, the other guy was going to Kodiak. Um, Chief was on leave, and the first class was um, had made warrant officer, so he had leave. And the, the Lewis was, I don't know where, where Lewis was <laughs> at the time. but So I'm in the shop all alone looking around at stuff, you know, and opening cupboards and, you know, just... I have no idea what I'm doing. And the phone rings, or oh, you know, it's a rival shop, Petty Officer McIntyre. And it's like, yeah, we have a you know, an airplane with a gripe, you gotta come down and check it. Well, I have no clue. <laughs> First day of the job. What I'm doing. It's like, okay, so I wander around upstairs and go down and engineering, so I walk in and I you know, I'm like, Yeah, I'm ASM three McIntyre and <laughs> like okay i'm like call there's a discrepancy on one of the airplanes yeah it's in the book i'm like i have no idea <laughs> where's the book <laughs> what you're talking about it's like oh my god so of course you know you get up and the, and the pilot writes up what they called gripes something wrong with the airplane and it was the the seat cover on one of the hu 16 es was was starting to fray so it's like okay I can so, fix that. <laughs> all right. So I go in and I take it off and go up, up to the ASM loft where there I happened to be in one of the cupboards that had, you know, HU-16 seat covers. I found another one, took it down, put it on, came back, and <laughs> there's a couple guys there. I go, all right, I fixed it. What do I do? And they go, we'll sign it off. And I'm like, where? <laughs> <laughs> okay, see this? It says, you know, pilot's seat cover is, is frayed. Replace pilot seat cover, and then your name, and how long it took you, and the date. Like, okay, so, you know, and before I leave, the guy looks over the book, goes, "Who the hell's McIntyre?" I'm like, "That, that's me." Who the hell are you? <laughs> I'm the new ASM. Oh, well, isn't Lemeron going to show you around? No, he's on leave. Well, where's Lewis? I don't know. Well, isn't George around? Nope, he's off and you know and Boone left for Kodiak so you're here all alone pretty much he goes welcome to the fucking U.S. Coast Guard <laughs> like, okay thanks I'm also not going to show you around <laughs> no I had nobody show him I finally you know I, I, I met a few other guys and um, of course the best place to meet these guys is, is 
after work, there's, oh, look, there's a bar here. Ooh, I can go have a beer. So I go have a beer and I meet a couple of other guys and they're like, oh, yeah, you're, oh, the new ASM. Yeah, we heard, you know, you were coming. But, you know, there's nobody in your shop. But I'm like, I'm well aware. Uh, well, the next day, uh, Lewis did show up and he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, yeah, he goes, well, I guess I'll show you around. So, you know, then the second day there, everybody's like, well, it's about time you showed up to get your syllabus and your welcome aboard package and do all this stuff. And I'm like, well, <laughs> here it is. So, yeah, it was a, it was a quick awakening. And then uh, we had went to uh, the training branch and they were like, and one of the things when I went to A school, one of our instructors said, hey, when you get to your air station, if they ask you if you want to fly fixed wing or helicopters, say helicopters, because helicopters are cool. You don't fly all day, and you get to do the most SAR. So helicopters are the way to go. It's like, awesome. So we get to the training division, and the training petty officer says, oh, hey, welcome aboard, blah, blah. You know. So what would you want to be, uh, helicopters or fixed wing? I said, helicopters. He goes, don't we all? Too bad. Here you go. Here's your fixed wing syllabus. You have six months to get it done. <laughs> have a great day. It's like, oh, my God. So, yeah. So... Rocky start, to say the least. Um, but you've got two books here that are aviator flight books. And as you told me earlier, don't lose these. These are 19 years of my life. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the first one that you have right there, that um, the training petty officer, AT1 Gunderson, gave me the book and said, you're going to want to write down everything you do in aviation. Dates, times, aircraft number, pilot in command, um, and what you did. Because, number one, it proves that you actually have that flight time. And number two, when you're old and gray, you look back at it and have remember all the fun times you had or all the shitty times you had. And when he gave me that, the first one, I, I did. I diligently wrote down every single flight I had all through my Coast Guard career. So, yeah, you've got... Four entries in a random, like the first page, which are all HU-16Es, which is... Yep. Uh, now, a little backstory. Traverse City now is uh, helicopter only. Helicopter There only. are no fixed wings. Nope. Uh, back when you started, there were. Yes. Uh, clearly. Uh, so Albatross is, uh, I'm going to call it a water landing C-130. Smaller, but oh, yeah, yeah. lands in the water. Much smaller, yeah. Uh, then the next page is all C-130s, and that C seems to be... C-131s. 131. They so. were small, yeah. Okay. So, and C-131s, which, yes, different plane. So, how many planes did Traverse City have when you... When I was there, they had two helicopters and three fixed wing, which they kept... When we got rid of the HU-16s, we went to the... C-131, which was supposed to be an interim aircraft because the Coast Guard had bought a whole bunch of jet airplanes. And they bought them from the French Mirage Company, and they weren't very keen on, you know, filling orders for the United States. And then they had to build them, fly them in France, disassemble them, put them on a boat, bring them to Texas, assemble them all back together, and fly them to make sure that all the bugs worked out. And from there, they went to um, Aviation Training Command Mobile, where people transitioned over to that airplane. And it was supposed to be in service by 1980, and I 
think, I believe that wasn't really generally in service until 82 or 83. But, um, yeah, you just... And then when you get to the air station, as soon as Lewis got back, and as soon as George got back, and then as soon as um, the chief was back, then we had a, quote, full shop again, unquote. They took me off, and when you are a junior enlisted, you either mess cook, which I did my fair share of on the ship, but now I was raided, but you can't have an aviator to work in the galley. Well, you could, but they gave us the thing called Stomper Watch, which was night security. So you'd walk around every night from 10 at night until six in the morning, every hour on the hour, making sure the place didn't catch on fire or no one was stealing things. And at the time, Traverse City did not have a main gate. Traverse City didn't have a fence all the way around it. It had, um, in some places, it had chicken wire. In some places, it had chain link fence. And in some places, it had no fence. And there was, like I said, there was no main gate. It was on the main drag right to the airport. So you get people in the middle of the night, just, okay, turn in. And, you know, how far away is the airport? Well, you, you know, it's further on down the road. Well, I'm, I just want to park. This is Coast Guard Air right. Station. You, you can't, can't park, park here. And, and that would be the majority of the thing doing at night. And again, checking for fires. And in the wintertime, the, all the, it, it, it's an old air station, or was at the time. I think it's still old. Yeah, but back then, all the heat and all the buildings was from a boiler. And um, gas-fired boiler, or not gas, but um, I guess it was natural gas. But all the, the other guys on the ship, the, the, the guys that, black shoes, the ones that weren't in aviation, but they were there and, you know, support, cut the grass, maintain all the vehicles, they would be at the boiler house in the wintertime, making sure their boilers were running and the heat was going and then checking their temperatures and, you know, doing that thing. And part of the stopper watch was you would stop in every hour and, you know, make sure that they were okay. And if they needed, you know, if they had to get, take a, a pee break or something, you, you'd do that for them. And so that was one month on. And the whole month you were on, you served two days on, one day off which your one day off was kind of all busted up because you just got off at six o'clock. So your day off, you're, you know, you go back home, go to bed, wake up at two in the afternoon and you can, you know, do whatever you want. You don't have to be to work that night, but right. you have to be. Your schedule's not matching. Yeah, your else. schedule's off. And, and I remember one of the first things they told me was, you know, you had, we had this old big old DTEX clock and every station had a key. We had to insert the key into the clock and turn it and it would click and would tell you what time you were at that station. And that way at, in the morning when the chief would, you know, pull out the disc and he'd just look and see, you know, all nice and straight lines and, you know, you did your rounds every hour. Okay, good job and go home. And the first thing that my first night they said, all right, what you have to watch out for is... They had two Avgas stations where they put aviation gas in the fixed wing airplane. 115, 145 octane. I mean, it's kick butt octane. And he goes, you make sure that no one steals any of gas. And if they do, you come and get me immediately. You know, if you see anybody out there. Okay. So, you know, my first round, I go out and I'm checked with a boiler guy, you know, and talked to him a little bit. And you know, got over rounds and I get to the hangar and I 
punch the clock there and I go on the other side and I punch the clock there and I walk outside and who do I see but the entire night check all lined up at the gas pumps putting gas in their cars, <laughs> including the night check supervisor. And he's like, oh, hey, you must be the new guy. Hi, how's it going? I was like, what are you guys doing? Of course, he looks at me like I'm an idiot and goes, gas it up. Yeah, you, you, you could put 115, 145 in your car, but you didn't want to put straight 115, 145 in your car. And this was right when they started going to that no lead, less octane. And, you know, some of these guys had pretty nice cars or, you know, the engines were, you know, high performance, high tuned, and they didn't like that. So they'd mix in 115, 145. And... Well, now, has aviation... Fuel change something because I've heard now it's more like diesel. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's yeah there's JP four, JP five, JP I can I can't remember now. JP four has a less of a flash point than JP five, so JP four is used on ships. And at the time, the helicopters we had, you could you could basically detune the engine for the whatever it was more of a sludge you know whatever but oh, I, so. and i and i know there's jp8 that the sr71 uses which is almost like molasses right so but um yeah so we had and we had the helicopter had two gas pumps too you know for jp and yeah later on when guys got diesels they would put jp4 because it's it's pretty close to diesel fuel. <laughs> you know, higher octane and make it run good. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> run hot, you know. So when did you start flying? Right away or No, that's like I said, I had I got to the air station and you know, I I'm gonna do my syllabus and by gosh, I'm gonna get qualified right away. Well, I'm sure and, everyone says that. Yeah, everyone says that. And well now you're gonna be the night security. And then you're gonna go, Oh well, you know what? We have a billet. Because I got there in uh, March. In April, I was night security. And then maybe, maybe. No, I got there in March. March, I was night security. April, they sent me away to a school in, in Ileson Air Force Base in Alaska on winter survival. And I was going to be an instructor for that at the air station. I was like, okay. So that was a two-week course. Went to Ileson Air Force Base. Again, I have really not much of an idea of what my job really is. And I go to an Air Force base. And there was there was a couple other ASMs there from other units. And we didn't hang out much because we got separated into different groups. But all these Air Force guys and Army guys, and um, I think there was a couple of Navy guys that was in my my class. And, you know, the first night you're sitting around a fire. And it's I mean, it's cold. And... You're introducing yourselves, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm ASM3 McIntyre. I'm from Traverse City, I'm, you know, Coast Guard. And the guy next to me is in the Army and goes, you know, I get tired of this crap. I'm too old to be out here in the cold. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I should join the Coast Guard. And he looks over at me and goes, and your ass is freezing too. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so that was a that was fun. I got back to that, and... Um, my chief said, hey, you know, I'm going to get you as many classes as I can because you need to, you know, the, the well-rounded kid, gotta, you, you got to go to all these schools. So they sent me like two other schools on bomb wrap repair and uh, sewing machine repair. 
and uh, which was a two-week course at Chanute Air Force Base, and one, two days were spent how to sabotage your sewing machine so it cannot be used by the enemy. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. So, so yeah. this syllabus hasn't I mean, been updated since World War II. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, okay, that's fun. Um, uh, but, yeah, so I, and by the time I got back, and I would start working on my syllabus again diligently, all the time, you know, learning about the helicopters and the stuff on the helicopters and, and doing these and doing that, and working diligently. And they go, hey, so-and-so, guess what? You're going to be night security again for this month, you know, and it's like, no, you know, and, and yeah, you know, it's like, I, I was a young smart ass. I was like, well, they don't want me to be qualified. I'm not even going to look at my course. Well, that was stupid. So, you know, by the time I got off and I, I got qualified, I finally got qualified in the HU-16 and uh, I took off and got some flights, did some training and I didn't, really write down the training flights in which yeah so i wrote down you know the flights i was kind of qualified at and uh the the first one there that was a, a familiarization flight after you're qualified they fly you all over the place and show you the mackinac bridge and the upper peninsula and you know what it looks like from the air and where they operate from and it was kind of fun and then um i don't think i had any real sar cases or anything just you know flying around and then I got done with that, and they said, okay, we're going to get these new interim aircrafts, 131s, and you're going to go to Mobile, Alabama, and learn how to be a loadmaster, dropmaster in those airplanes. So, back down to Alabama I went. One plane down, more to go. So that one, obviously, you qualified in that. Yep. And you started flying in those predominantly in April, and that looks like that's... Yeah, All April, you flew in was the 131. Yeah, because, you know, that's the one you're going to get qualified in. And, again, being a young smartass, I could have gone and said, hey, can I be dual qualified and get qualified in the helicopter? <clears throat> and I didn't. I just said, you know, if they don't want me to be qualified in helicopters, I won't. So, you know, I'm third class um, flying in, you know, aircraft, and I was fine with it. I just... But I, yeah, in, when I went to Mobile, they teach you how to be a load master, drop master, and I am not a math whiz by any stretch, shape, imagination. And you had to learn MAC, which is you know mean aerodynamic core of the airplane, where it is. And if you load it so far and you move your MAC too far back, it's going to fly nose up. And if you move it too far forward, it's going to fly nose down. And if it's flying nose down or trying to take off and the weight's too far back, it's not going to fly, you know, and do all this stuff. And we had a, basically a slide rule, which was a slipstick, and you could just, and I would just whip through that thing and go, nope, we're good to go. You know, you had to be within so many degrees of your mean aerodynamic cord, and I just, yep, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. And, I mean, then eventually they start sending me, we'd go to um, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania to get a whole bunch of flares or pyrotechnics or whatever, and we'd load up on them, and then fly, like we'd fly to the Charlevoix Airport, land there, and the small boat station would come pick up their stuff, and, you know, fly it to the Sioux, like their guys who could pick up their stuff and supply runs. Yeah, just supply runs, and that's you know, and then I have to remove. Okay, we have to move this whole pallet. This one has to come forward. And, you know, why does it have to come forward? So we're back in percent of Mac and all this stuff, and the pilots, you know, 
especially um, Bob Gray, who was, he is a Vietnam vet. He was a really good guy. He, I'd hand him all the paperwork. He'd go, don't give me this shit. Are we good? Yes, sir. We're good. All right. <laughs> you know, all right. You know, I mean, your ass is on the airplane too, so let's go. And we'd go. So kind of go over this a little bit. In April, you had one, two, three, uh, seven flights. Seven flights. A uh, couple, just reading your remarks here, uh, Admiral oh, yeah. Fugaro. Fugaro, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's just... yeah. You, you, when, as soon as we got fixed wing airplanes, and basically this the the one thirty one, they flew them out of Traverse City um, with an, an airline. They had turboprops, but it was basically a C one thirty one with turboprops, and we had the old World War Two engines. But these admirals would go, oh, that can fly my butt around. So they would, you know, call and I have to do this. And instead of then save the Coast Guard money, I won't fly commercial. I'll just have this airplane at my beck and call to come fly down to Cleveland, pick me up, take me where I'm going. And, you know, we'd basically be. And one of the guys I was stationed with at the time changed it to, um, and the, the 131 has an extremely large tail rudder. And... It was, you know, the, the fat-assed airplane, and he started calling it the um, the Roo, the Kangaroo Airline, for short hops. And so we became, you know, the Red Tail Airlines, or Roo Airlines, and uh, the 131 had a bad reputation for when every time you landed, you checked the gas and filled the oil, because those engines would suck oil. I mean, they're World War II vintage, 2800, uh, you know, Pratt & Whitney 2800 engines, they'd suck oil or blow it out um so yeah but many a fun time with the admirals because in aviation you do not wear a hat on an aircraft ramp when the aircraft are operating and what the pilots would do a lot of times would they'd shut down the right engine i'd lower the door stand at the foot of the door you know greet the admiral take his bags or he usually had aids but you know and Get them on the airplane and, you know, the, the, get them settled and all this fun stuff. And the aides were always pain in the ass. They're little lieutenants they're trying to make their name in the Coast Guard or make their names up there. And here I am, me and this other guy standing for the stairs, no hats on. We're on an aircraft ramp. You know, the left engine's just running. And this lieutenant comes up. And, you know, the admiral's like, you know, Morning, Admiral. And you don't have a hat on, so you don't salute. You show your respects. Good morning, Admiral. You know, welcome aboard. Pilot today is, you know, Lieutenant Commander Gray. Yada, yada, yada. You know, you know, step aboard. And so, Petty Officer so-and-so will show you to your seat. Okay. And he's like, where's your hat? And this Lieutenant's like, where's your hat? I said, in the airplane. We don't wear hats on the ramp. You have to salute an Admiral. And he's going on and on like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to the hand. I don't care. And, you know, a pilot would be like, <laughs> out the window and be like, get his ass on the airplane! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the one, the one time, especially with Fugaro, was we flew him and his wife and his aides and a couple of captains and their wives. And we go pick them all up. And by then, and admirals, are pre admirals and captains are pretty cool. They, you know, hey, how's it going? You know, I remember you from last time, you know. And get them on the airplane and this aide comes up and I was up in the mess 
getting the coffee for the admirals and stuff. And he comes up and goes, you were instructed to have donuts. The admiral wants his donuts. Can, where's his donuts? And I'm like, I'll get him, sir. I'll get him. And he turns around right into the admiral's wife. And the admiral's wife looks at me and goes, is the lieutenant bothering you? I'm like, no, ma'am. He just wanted to know where the admiral's donuts were. And his wife goes, the admiral's fat and doesn't need donuts. His coffee will be fine. Thank you, young man. Lieutenant, sit down. <laughs> and it's like, okay. So she outranks the lieutenant. Why, I, I've learned that wives seem to yeah. outrank most people, in the, at least in the Coast Guard. Yeah, you'll, yeah. There's still when we get to Kodiak, there's stories yeah. about how your mom could... Yeah, friends with admirals. Yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah, now you've got a couple flights for uh, PAX New York to Cleveland. I'm assuming. Yep. Supply runs. Passengers. Okay. Passengers PAX. Okay. Uh, flight to Green Bay. Yep. And you feathered the left engine on one flight. Yep. So I didn't. But not, well, yeah. Not not much going on. Well, uh, and you, when we flew, we had the ICS system, intercommunication system, so we all have headsets on and we can talk to each other and i have it tuned in because i was in the back and you have it tuned into all the radios that the pilots are listening to so when there's no one talking you can talk to the pilots or talk to each other and you know a lot of the pilots would be like you know did you watch the game last night you know it's like yeah you know yeah and then you hear some you know you know coast guard five seven nine seven you know Cleveland air, you know, say, so, all right, quiet, because the pilots are going to be talking to the tower or whatever. And when they go off, you know, like, yeah, you know, blah, 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 and just, you know, just shoot the breeze and just keep each other awake and talk. Pass about, the time. Yeah. Uh, so you really started flying, obviously, and more times than not. And the wind, obviously, everyone thinks that Coast Guard is, you're, you are... Um, rescuing people all the time, which I'm here to tell you, looking at your flight logs, <laughs> that doesn't happen. No, it does not, especially in the fixed-wing airplane, because later on, when I became rotary-wing, it... That happens more. It, oh, yeah, and it became apparent, and then we started the... And I don't know who started it. It's probably been a saying forever, and it's fixed-wing airplanes. When in danger or in doubt, fly in circles, throw shit out. I mean, because that's all you can do is throw them a raft, throw them a pump, throw, you know, and hope they get it. You, that's that's all you can do. You cannot go down there and land and help them out, you know, hands-on. It's That's what you do. And later on, when I'm in Alpat, the, one of the... Um, boat crews I rescued, the guy really brought it home when he said, you know, I saw the fixed wing airplane and I knew we got found. And when I saw the helicopter, I knew we were rescued, which, you know, that was pretty profound. And that stayed yeah, with me that, to this day. <laughs> so. so that one, now jumping to September of 1979, you have a note here, 13, two SARS in one day, missing people on boat yep. were never found. Uh, that was, I'm assuming, on the 13th of September. Right. And yeah. on the 24th, uh, same case, SAR case for balloon. Yep. Oh, hot uh, air balloon. Hot air balloon. <laughs> yep. Hot air balloon was crossing the Lake Michigan. Oh, jeez. And so we went out looking for a hot air balloon, never, never found anything. And 
some of those, you know, like the small boat stations would usually get missing boater or overdue boater reported in and they would go out and the first thing they do is check all the parking lots, boat launches and see if there's a, a car there, you know, because they usually get reported, you know, very late at night. Right. So they go to these boat launches and see if there's a car there with a trailer, no boat on it, no one's around, no one knows where it is. And the people that reported missing say he left from this boat launch it's a pretty good idea. He's not there. So then they have to go out and start looking. And a lot of times, and, and not, well, maybe not a lot of times, but sometimes the boater would find himself in trouble or lost at night. So he would head for some lights, beach the boat, walk up to the house, find out where he is, and be happy right there, especially if it was a bar. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> just forget to call people and say, I'm at the bar. I'm okay. You know, I'm going to wait till the morning to come back in daylight so I can figure out where I am. But, the, you know, so when the boat guys would get out and they, you know, maybe we need a, a, a airplane, search a bigger area, look out more, you know, spot them for us and we can go in and ask the guy if he's okay or, you know, and, and zero in on it instead of us being out here on the boat. And Lake Michigan's really big. So, yeah, we get called in for that kind of thing. So, obviously, that was more out in the Great Lakes, not so much inland lakes. No, inland lakes, you might... The helicopters would get tasked inland lakes, you know, a drowning victim or yeah, yeah. somebody like that. Yeah, for the inland lakes. But, yeah, for the big lakes, it would usually be the fixed wing. So, last flight for you, which is not your last flight for you on the 131, because there's more pages here filled <laughs> out. Well, it was probably the last flight of that aircraft. Okay. Because we were, that they were being phased out so that we could, and Traverse City was supposed to get three Falcon jets and carry on with the two helicopters, and that's when that new hangar was built, and the old World War II hangar was destroyed. We were supposed to have the Falcon jets, well, the Falcon jets were delayed, but the 131s were only supposed to be interim and used very sparingly, and they were being used a lot for, you know, admirals and all that stuff. So they're they're high time. They can't fly anymore. So we'd start losing them. And so then we'd go down to just two fixed-wing airplanes and then one fixed-wing airplane. And then that's when that's when I realized, talking to everybody, is we're going to lose these fixed-wing airplanes and you're not going to be able to fly. And if you're not going to be able to fly, your 100 bucks a month flight pay is going to end. And extra 100 bucks a month is an extra 100 bucks a month. So... I started working on getting um, uh, 52 qualified. The, the, and in between times, I had to fly the 131s. So, so, yeah. So always flying. Now, how much time, because I see, I mean, you've logged all your times here. Yep. How much time to get qualified? Usually in well in the in the 131 in the HU16 I believe it was a total of eight eight or nine flights where one was just a fam flight and in in the uh, Albatross the HU16 you had a you put rig up a, a platform sit outside the entry door and then you'd put whatever you're gonna drop on it you know hook up the parachute and then just push it out the door and. So you had familiarization flights to do that, and you'd um, 
get with the, the small boat stations, you drop them pumps or, fit, you know, d drill pumps and drill this and drill that and just drop them stuff and practice and practice. And then you would have, um, yeah, and you have other duties on there. One of them was, um, you know, engine fire. You have to know what to do for an engine fire. You have to know what to do for a um, flaps failure, you know, and, and you'd have to go in the back and get the crank and crank the flaps down and listen to the pilots. I need flaps set 10 and you crank them down. And same thing with the, the main gear. If the main gear doesn't go down and the albatross couldn't land in the water legally anymore, but like Bobby Gray used to say, if this thing doesn't have landing gear, it's going in the water. I don't give a shit. And you know, and okay, but you'd have to crank the gear down by hand, which is extremely hard to do. And you know, you crank one side down, and then go to the other side, crank that one down, then go crank the nose wheel down, and you know, and you'd have to get it crank, 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 and the pilots might sometimes forget to tell you that you know they have you know green light, <laughs> and you're cranking it's like getting harder and harder, and that's because it's locked in place. It's, oh my god, yeah. So, but you had to do all the emergencies, fire on board, you know, and usually, and then that would be your check ride. And depending on how hard they wanted it to be on you, they would give you, you know, a lot of emergencies. Or they might just say, we have a fire, you know, what would you do if we had this? And, you know, you'd tell them and they go, okay, good. And, you know, and they would be, you know, talking like right in front of you, you know, petty officer so on. And the guy that gave my check ride on the HU-16s was um, Steve Rothline. And later on, him and I were stationed in Port Angeles together. And I gave him his check ride on a 52. But... But you know, you know, you know, and most of the time, our pilots. And, and when I was in the Coast Guard in aviation, it was a very lax place. It wasn't like it is now, where it would, you know, like ask me a question, give them an answer, and the pilots would go, "Hey, Steve, you know, pretty good answer. What do you think?" You know, yeah, and remember to do this, you know. And it would the pilots once we were in the airplane. It was always, I mean, they weren't by their first name, but, you know, Mr., you know, not no. so much or right. LT, or, you know, hey, 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 LCDR, you know, just, you know, being funny with them, or, you know, and they, you know, they didn't care, you were part of a tight crew, you were just, you know, and I remember this funny story, we'd see Mr. Gray coming out of galley, and I don't think Mr. Gray ever wore anything but a flight suit except for inspections. And he's coming out of the galley and he's got his toothpick and we all lined up one after the other to salute him. And, you know, morning, sir. You know, salute. And he's like, hey, how's it going? You know, hey, how's it going? And he's like, and he finally sees the whole line come and he goes, you sons of bitches. I'm just going to give you one salute and go to hell. And it's like, you know, just shit like that. And, you know, nobody, nobody really cared. Now it's, you can't call... Uh, even I couldn't call Steve, Steve, because he was a senior petty officer. I'd have to call him Petty Officer Rothline. And, mm. You know, it's, that's one thing that really in, endeared me to aviation. It was more of, a, more of an elite club than it was, you know, strictly military bearings and stuff. So that was in, still in the fixed wings, May 1980. Mm, yep, here we go. I don't know that this is coming. <laughs> I mean, this is the. There's. I'm just looking through your. There's not much going on. You know, pretty standard. You know, flights here. You know, flight there. Touch and goes. Uh, broke down ironwood. Blah blah blah. And then there's this page that's almost full with 
Uh, start a start deployment to Coast Guard Air Station Miami. Yeah, that was in nineteen and prior to this time. This is in the but I was still I don't know nineteen eighty nineteen yeah nineteen twenty twenty I guess. No, I don't know. Whatever. I was still a young guy, and I didn't really give a flying fat rat's behind about anything other than, you know, hockey scores, football scores. You know, that to me, that was the news. Who won the game last night? And in 1980, the Olympics, you know, that was a big thing. And But I was in the shop, and my first class at the time, Ken Dalzell, has a meeting, all engineering meeting. We didn't have a chief at the time. And Diz goes up comes back down he goes hey mac we just had this meeting and i'm like yeah he goes well you know you've probably heard the news about what's going on in cuba and florida <laughs> no i, I know <laughs> where cuba is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no he goes well castro is allowing anybody that wants to leave cuba to leave cuba and if they get to the u.s the u.s is going to grant them asylum and president carter at the time, and you know, it's it's going to happen, and the Coast Guard's in charge of the operation, and it has been going on since last month. Not, not, I had no idea. And he goes, but I think you know, you're getting ready to go somewhere in your career. It would be a good opportunity for a young guy <laughs> to go to another unit to see how it's operated, and you know, get an idea. Of maybe you probably do a lot more SAR down there and have a good time. And it's Miami, you know, it's going to be fun. You might want to think about volunteering. Well, of course, violating my dad's first rule, never never volunteer for anything. I ran upstairs, went to the leading chief. I said, you know, Master Chief Costigan, I'd like to volunteer to go to this deployment to Miami. And he looked at me and goes, Diz already told me, gave me your name. You're going. <laughs> I so, but it's nice of you to volunteer. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> it's like, okay. So I go back down. I go, hey, this, my name was already on the list. I just told them a couple of third class names, which, you know, only one. I was the only third class in the shop. So it's like, okay. So, yeah, we, and I can't remember the exact outcome or how many days, but we had a couple days to go, and we were going to go to Miami. We took the airplane down, 5799, with Bob Gray, Mr. Engvall, uh, Augusta, Augusta, Wyman, you know, yeah, Roberts, Mr. Roberts, Mr. Gray and Roberts were probably the two best pilots we had in um, Travers. Mr. Engvall and um, I can't remember who the other pilot was, but that you know, we had to take down full two two full crews to Miami. We got to Miami, but of course, as we we're on our way to Miami to do all this fun stuff, we got diverted to Mobile to pick up a whole bunch of flares because they were running out of flares doing all this sarcasm. and we're on our way. So so I had to slip load a whole bunch of flares, get to Miami. We didn't get to Miami until late that night. Get into Miami and they're like, okay, here's the deal. Who's, you know, divide your crews up and mine was Swyman, um, Blake, Cyril's, me, Mr. Gray, Mr. Roberts. But our pilots will change eventually. But that was our crew. And they go, okay, do you guys, you know, figure it out however you want to do it. Who's going to fly tomorrow? When are you going to fly in the morning? When are you going to fly at night? And I, Gene 
by engineering uh, or the engineer petty officer said we'll just take the morning flight and he talked to the other guy and said they'll take the afternoon flight so okay so you had a morning flight an afternoon flight and the next day you were off and then the day after you were off you had an afternoon flight then a morning flight then you were off so it rotated around so they didn't want you coming in on after your day off because there might be alcohol involved what yeah so anyway we we get to miami and in they put us up at a hotel because Miami is a big station, but it didn't have room for all these crews. And I mean, there were crews from Corpus Christi, Texas, Cape Cod, Traverse City, uh, Alabama had crews in there. I mean, just every pretty much air station was in there. And we, the next morning, we go out and we fly. And the Coast Guard was in charge at the time, and there were three search areas. Um, X-Ray, uh, Yankee, and Zulu. And I I got it written down there which one's closest to Cuba. But I think we drew the one closest to Cuba the first day. And all you could see was boats. And we're just like, oh my God, you know, if you had a 12-foot plank, you could walk from Cuba to the U.S. Across I these mean, boats. Across these boats. There were just... So many, but all these people, and some were boats, some were just rafts, some were just a bunch of inner tubes tied to wood. I mean, it was... They wanted out. They they were going to get out. And we were supposed to be there for two weeks. We ended up being there for 28 days because they didn't want to let us leave Miami because they needed the airframe and they needed the crews. So we stayed there for 28 days. And I see your note I probably kind of alludes to what you just said. Everywhere, hard not to see at least 20 a flight. Yep. I'm assuming that means 20 boats. 20 boats. There were Coast Guard boats in the way, in the, in the area. There were um, 378s, two, 210s. And we had, for the first two weeks were a lot of fun. Um, if you could call it fun. Um, when we were down there, uh, race riots erupted in Miami. And we were um, coming back from a night flight. And again, you know, not paying attention to the news, uh, police brutality, and you know, the riots started in Miami. And I mean, we're flying in going, holy crap, there's a huge fire in Miami, you know. And we were out of Opalaca, which was just north of Miami. And we land and they're like, yeah, there's big, there's riots everywhere. You know, I don't know if you guys are going to make it to the hotel. So, you know, we get in the car and we start driving and, and the, I remember Paul Searles was driving and there were people on the street and they were smashing bottles and, and trying to tip over a car and Paul stops for a red light and there's no cars coming and we're like, Paul, go, go. He goes, I have a red light. Go, <laughs> get the hell, get out of here. So he, oh, if I get a ticket, if I get a ticket, <laughs> you guys, I'll do. like, you know what? The best thing that could happen to us right now is if cop stops us. And we got to the hotel and the police would come, they're in the riots, the police would come and escort us to the air station. I mean, it was, they, it was a curfew, it was locked down and it was, it was pretty, I mean, you know, we're like, golly, you know, here we are trying to help people come to the country and the people that live in the country are want to burn it down. So it's, you know, but that's when I started actually 
paying attention to the news of what's going on, which I still do to this day. So that was May. 1980. Yep, 1980. Yep. Uh, you have a letter from the officer, commanding officer of Air Station Miami to Traverse City, and your name is listed in there. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> uh, back now in July 1980, you go back to Miami. Go back to Miami, yes. Is this still part of the Exodus? Yes, still part of the Exodus. It's drawing down a little bit, but Castro then opened all his prisons and said, hey, get the hell out of my country. And, you know, where do we go? Go to the U.S. They'll take you. Well, by July, the the fun and games ended because the Navy came in, which, again, if knowing Lieutenant Commander Robert Gray, Vietnam vet, I mean, he, he meddles up the wazoo for being a SAR pilot in Vietnam. And he doesn't, play well with others and we one flight we flew down to cuba and we're looking around and you know there's there's a mig off our wing just you know waves you know just okay you know and we're coming back and we get calls from key west naval air station key west identify yourself and you know it's like you know it's coast guard and they send out f4s after us to verify who we are, and they want us to land at Key West, NAS Key West, Naval Air Station Key West. And Gray's like, I don't want to land at freaking Key West, you know? And he's like, what's the reason? He goes, we have to verify your identity. And he goes, I'm in a big fucking white airplane with U.S. Coast Guard on it and stars and bars. What do I need to identify myself for? And, you know, they're getting nasty. So he goes, all right, here's what we'll do. And this is to the crew. We throttled back both engines to as flaps down, slow as they could possibly go, and we're just creeping through the air. And these jets, I mean, we're going too slow. They're breaking off, trying, you know, coming back around behind us and just, you know, trying to escort us. <laughs> you know, oh, can you guys go faster? <laughs> nope. We're, we're flat out. <laughs> and he, we landed at Opa, our, uh, NAS Key West, landed there. I open the door, he comes to the door and says, close the door after me, nobody comes on, you'll see me coming, open the door. <laughs> yes, sir, and he goes off in his orange flight suit and his hat, and he is on a mission. And I remember uh, Lieutenant Roberts is like, oh, to be a fly on the wall in that building. And I mean, and this happened with Bob Gray a couple of other times, just flying with him. We went to um, Wurtsmith Air Force Base, and they had us land there because we were, we wanted to do touch and goes, and we didn't have proper clearance or whatever. So we land. I open up the door, and there's Air Force police, whatever they're called, Air Police, and they have a dog. And you know, like, um, Mr. Gray? You might want to, and he goes up there, and the guy with the dog starting to come on the airplane. He goes, "Get your ass off my airplane!" And he goes, "Sir, I have no. You don't have to do shit. I'm going into the operations, and I'm going to clear this shit up right now." McIntyre, close the door behind me. Don't let anybody on this airplane. And it's like, "Yes, sir." And he starts going down there, and the dog's like, getting a little, and he goes, 
you get the fucking dog off me, kid, or I'm going to kick its ass and yours too. And the guy, <laughs> the handler's like, you know, and he's a, a lieutenant commander in the Coast Guard's like a uh, colonel, the lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. So he's got like, some pull. Hey, he got some pull. He's like, oh, yeah. And he goes stomping off into the thing and just like, oh, man, this is not going to be pretty. And, you know, he comes back and he gets in, you know, and he puts his headset on and he's like, all right, you know, and they get started all up. And he goes, well, fellas, if I don't lose my <laughs> career over this, and it's like, and I to, I don't know if anything ever came of any of these incidents, but I know that Bob Gray stayed in the Coast Guard and flew a lot. So, but yeah, it was. But so, yeah, oh, the, yeah. And, and when the Navy took over, it used to be um, a Coast Guard cutter. You know, was on scene commander. We relay messages to them. When the Navy took over, they brought in the attack carrier, the Saipan. And we're out flying one time, and, and the pilot's like, you know, U.S. Navy vessel Saipan, U.S. Navy vessel Saipan, U.S. Navy vessel Saipan. This is Coast Guard 579 or 9 or 579 or 9 or blah, blah, blah. And he goes, nothing. And he call again, call again, call again. And, of course, the Navy took charge, and everything was secret, and... If you're trying to reach the LHPC number, blah, 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 please use call sign um, ice pack. And he's like, what the hell is this, you know? So we're like, hey, maybe we should have a cool call sign, you know? Hey, blah, blah, you know? And, you know, just shooting the breeze. So he's like, all right. So he'd go, all right, we'll play their games. So he'd be like, ice chest, ice chest, ice chest. And they go, are you referring to ice pack? Yeah. Six pack. This is a <laughs> and it just. I mean, he would. He'd mess with a bass. Like we were doing fine till you guys came along, but uh, so. But the that was on the second trip I went on. The first trip I went on, we were at the hotel and we would fly our two days. Second day, we'd be at the pool drinking, and there was a racetrack by, and we'd you know watch. Um, it was. It was a horse race track, and it was a super fancy hotel. I don't ever know why they let the Coast Guard be there. And the bar would always be full of jockeys every night. I mean, just all kinds of jockeys. And it's like, oh, okay. And, but we would get our bill for the hotel, and not including all the beer and stuff we had. So we'd go to the base and say, hey, here's my motel bill. I need the money to pay for it because we didn't have credit cards at the time. And I remember the guy going, it was 300 bucks or something for the week or whatever it was. And he's like, 100, 200, 300. Do you, do you need to eat 400, 500, 600? I'm like, uh, seven, eight, you're at 800 bucks. That should cover it. Well, the government was throwing money away. It's like 800 bucks. So I go pay my bill at 360 for the week. And put the rest, I mean, I'm still getting paid. I mean, it was all at home in a paycheck, but I'm getting paid. And, you know, I, I just got an extra 400 bucks. And I'm like, well, what do I do, you know, next week when I get a hotel bill? Well, we'll pay that one too. And every week I'd go in there and get I, 360 bucks for my hotel bill, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, here you go. It's like, it's like putting 200 and, you know, and Bob Gray goes, when you fill out, just keep it. Don't do stupid because when you fill out your travel claim, they're going to take it all back. All right, you know. So after the first trip, which, you know, they gave free money, 
I put the money in the bank because they never asked for it. Second trip, same thing. You know, well, you know, they never asked me for it. And Bob Gray's like, they will. They'll catch up to you. They will. You, you know. They know where this money's going. <laughs> you know, and no, they never did care where the money was going. And I mean, it was just just massive amounts of, I mean, guys, there were guys going down there and saying, I got to pay my hotel bill and I got, you know, did this and this and this and this. 1200 bucks. there you go. And yeah, it's like. Man, and I, and I would never do that because I would be the one guy that would probably get caught. So I just, that's, yeah, I that, just, that's our luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just, you know, okay, you know, but I, I kept that money for like a year in the bank, just waiting for them to ask for it back, and they never did. And so I think I went out and bought a brand new stereo with it. <laughs> you know. So what were you guys doing? Just monitoring these people coming over? Or? Monitor, yeah. Monitor. You, you, we fly. Two or three hundred feet off the water, and just you know, if we saw a boat that was dead in the water, we'd fly over and if drop them a radio. And most of the time, they didn't speak English, and the ships had translators on there, and they you know we set the radio to the frequency, and they'd be calling in Spanish, and you you know. Coast Guard, blah, 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 and they, you know, and they just ran out of gas or whatever, and, and they would send small boats over and give them gas, or if the boat was sinking, you pull know, they'd pull them off and stuff, and that's what we did. We spotted all the people that were in trouble, because most of the people just, you know, or like, you know, planks of wood on inner tubes, we'd tell, you know, there's like 40 people <laughs> on this <laughs> floating raft, floating raft, and I'd just go inspect them if I were you, you know. And th that's all we did was just spot and make sure everybody was fine and not really doing a whole bunch of anything. Although when during the riot, <laughs> we're coming back to Opelika one night and, and we're landing in all we hear from the tower is five, seven, nine, nine, go around, go around, go around immediately, go around, go around. And that's something's happened on the runway, something's happened. And, you know, it's not quite an emergency, but my pilots go full power and you flaps up and you gear up and you come back around. And we're asking, you know, get back and everything's fine. We're going around. And we're like, you know, Opalaka Tower, you know, Coast Guard 579 or 9, what's going on? So, you know, the, you know the riots are going on in Miami. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we know that. You know, he says, well, <clears throat> we have a report of a sniper on the field here, oh, and uh, you guys might want to check and <laughs> see if you're okay. And it's like we're all looking at each other, like, who the hell takes shots at a Coast Guard aircraft? And you know, we're looking around. And it's it's night by then, so we're you know flashlights through windows we have holes in the wings and everything's fine and the pilots are like well we can't we don't have enough fuel to go back to key west we don't have enough fuel to go to miami international because that's where the riots are anyway so we're gonna land and you know to you know be advised police are unseen can you delay 10 minutes i think it was or something so we delayed a little bit just you know flying around and then we came in for a landing and we landed, and we get to the, you know, air station, and we park it, and, you know, there's like four or five guys out there. It's like, you guys all right? You guys all right? Like, yeah, we're all right. And, like, you know, pilot's like, no, nothing, you know, nothing happened. We're, we're fine. Okay. So, you know, we're, and Gene, my 
flight engineer who was the enlisted guy in charge of the airplane. He was very persnickety, and we all were because it was our airplane. We made sure that we post-flight our own airplane, got it all ready for the next day, even if we weren't going to fly on our airplane, and we washed it. We, you know, going down low, above salt water, we fresh water washed our airplane every night. And we start washing, and um, I noticed that, I didn't notice it. Uh, I think Mike Blake did. He's like, Gene, come here and look at this. And we're like, what? And, you know, he goes, and Mike's pointing up at the tail, goes, is that a bullet hole? And we're all like, what the hell? And we go in and tell um, Mr. Rollins, who was the maintenance officer, we go, sir, you need a check stand out here because we might have a bullet hole in the airplane. And it's like, you know, of course, then everybody's nuts. Everybody's crazy. All lights are going on. Push the thing out there. He climbs up in there and he sticks his finger in there and goes, I think that's a bullet hole. Better check the airplane for more. Well, we did, but they, as a matter of fact, they brought the airplane in the hangar with lights on and stuff. And, you know, they're taking pictures and stuff. And it's like, yeah, you got a bullet hole. It's like, well, so better call Opalaka and tell the cops that if they got a guy, yeah, he was taking shots at airplane so but that was the most exciting thing <laughs> like we got shot at we got shot at <laughs> <laughs> so that was a wartime like, you get a purple heart you know we, well you wouldn't I guess we, we, we go down to Cuba and MIGs are there and they wave at us we come back here and F, F4s want to escort us back and want to know what the hell we're doing and you know all that time you know they got all weapons known to man on these airplanes and they don't bother us some guy with a rifle at the end of the runway is taking shots at us that's a pretty good shot, honestly. Yeah, I uh, I mean, what was he aiming for? Though? Well, yeah. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was at the, almost at the top of the tail. And it, I mean, it didn't. You it went right through. Yeah, it just, you probably it, wouldn't have even noticed. No, I just, you know. But, I, you know, Mike's like looking real close. I don't remember. There's a black hole. There's a black spot on the airplane. Is it oil from the engine? What, you know? And look at it. Like, no. It's, <laughs> it's a hole. hole. It's a hole. So one last note here, and then we'll probably call it for this episode. Uh, July 30th, successful SAR boat seized by Coast Guard heading south. Who's the dumbass heading south? Um, Did you ever? You probably didn't even hear the story. No, but I think I think it was yeah. It, nobody was supposed to head south because a lot of people were heading south because the the port of Muriel, Cuba, was open. Hmm. So they would go down there, and then you know. I'll take you to the U.S. for 20 bucks. Oh. I'll take you to the U.S. for 100 bucks. I'll take you to the U.S. for that, you know. and Smugglers. Smugglers. Drug and, runners. Yeah, or just people with a private boat making some cash. Or, you know, I mean, not... But, yeah, so... Yeah, I, I, I believe that was part of it. And then we must have got wind that there was a boat heading south that they was, didn't want him heading south. And we saw him and found him and... The boats went over and got him. So, yeah, that's a little excitement for the day. <laughs> so, that, you know, pretty early in your career. Yeah, um, um, yeah, two years. So, yeah, then that's, uh, that's the Cuban uh, exodus. Cuban, yep, the Muriel Cuban boat lift, yep. So, that's, I mean, that's, I remember learning about that, or at least, maybe not learning, but it was mentioned in school. Yeah. And it's like, oh, shit. 
My dad was part of that. Yep. He went down and helped these people, basically. Yes. Volunteered the first time. The second time, it's just... Psh, You're going. And, yeah. The second time. In, in May, in Traverse City, is okay time to go. July is not a good time to go because it's summertime in Traverse City, but you're going back down to Miami. Yeah, it's like, yeah. But now, the first time we were down there, it was supposed to be two weeks, and we were there for 28 days. The second time, it was two weeks. And the second time I went down, went down with the different guys, and we decided that we were going to be tourists. So we went to every attraction we could in Miami. We went to every seafood place we could, you know, and we, you know, we went to the ocean a lot and, and you know, and, and had fun, but we didn't just sit around the pool and drink ourselves stupid every day that we were off. We went and... Is it, You're is not going to go to Miami again. You might as well see what's going on. Is that where the uh, uh, stale beer and cold pizza yes. came from? Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Breakfast yep. of Champions. Breakfast of Champions. You leave your Michelob out on the do- on the uh, porch outside deck thing and it, so it gets nice and warm. And, and crack it open so it gets stale. And then you know, your pizza stays in the room and gets cold. And yeah, the breakfast of champions. Here's a hangover. Warm Michelob and a cold piece of pizza. Oh, that's so disgusting. Not the cold pizza. The, 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 the Michelob in general. But. <laughs> I don't know if it ever worked as good as my friend said it did, but yeah, it was it was a staple. Well, you were young then. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, hangovers were easily, you know, yeah. you, you got over hangover a few hours. So. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't an all-day affair. <laughs> All right, so that's this episode. Uh, we will try to make this more of a normal thing. There are no more trips to Arizona. However, as you said, it is now May where we're at, and summer's coming. So camping trips might be in. So don't look for this to be a regular scheduled uh, series, but we will try to make them more regular. So for now, that is episode three of Supper Paratus, Supper Militaris. Like, follow. All that fun stuff and keep an eye out for pictures on Twitter. We are on Twitter so you will see some of the things we talk about as the episode goes up. You can get hints and kind of see some of the cool stuff that uh, Mac has accumulated over the years being in the Coast Guard. So thanks again for listening and we you will hear from us later. <laughs>